if a f commercial flight test is not successful, it's typically not the question of uh, uh, stick and rudder skill or the knowledge. Uh, more often than not, it's the lack of attention to details. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. Welcome to episode 16 of the Flying BC podcast. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the show, and I'm excited to have you all along for the journey so far. I just mailed out some patches to a couple listeners who left reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uwe in Ottawa, and Chris in Port McNeil, BC. I'll try and get to everyone over the course of the next few episodes, but this week, I've chosen two more reviews, Roel D'Souza and Sunil0910. Send an email to podcast at flyingbc.com with your address, and you'll get to join the Patch Club too. If you want a shot at scoring one of these pretty sweet Flying BC patches, just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or the Facebook page, and you'll be in the running. This week on Flying BC, we're talking with Vancouver-based Anna Serbanenko. Anna is an airshow performer, chief flight instructor at Canadian Flight Centre, and a Transport Canada pilot examiner. But her life involves a lot more than just flying. She has a PhD in financial mathematics, is fluent in eight languages, or maybe nine, I'm not sure. Upon moving to Canada, she took her first flight, and she was hooked. On this episode, we talk about how to master learning Anna's journey into aerobatics and airshow performing, and what she sees as a flight examiner. And then we wrap up with Anna sharing some of her experiences on the Canadian Arctic Aviation Tour. Please welcome the Sky Dancer, Anna Serbanenko. So let's start with your journey into aviation and kind of how that all started, because you, you lived a, a diverse life before that, traveling around all over the place, and you came to Canada and that's when you got into aviation. Uh, yes, I took my first flight uh, 10 days after I immigrated to Canada, but it's not the first moment where I got excited about aviation. I was really interested in getting around. I love traveling, I still do. And my vision was that I wanted to go places, but I wanted to have my own plane and fly it myself. I didn't want to hire a pilot. And I kind of like airlines, but it's still boring to sit in the back. <laughs> so I did explore the option of getting a pilot license. I wasn't thinking commercial license back then. And um, uh, back in Ukraine, where I'm from, when I inquired, the only option that I was offered is like, yeah, well, you have to go to the military. Having a newborn baby going to the Ukrainian military wasn't exactly an option. <laughs> So then uh, my life took me to Switzerland and um, it was more widely available. There is some GA in Switzerland. The airspace is very condensed, but there is some. And um, I could take lessons. The problem is the lessons were ridiculously expensive. <laughs> so just for comparison, the what I was paying for for uh, driving lessons in Switzerland uh, was about the same price that I was paying for my flight training when I came to Canada. Wow. Yeah. And the, obviously the flight training back in Switzerland was another three times more per hour. So it was just unaffordable because I was a student back then. And it's like, okay, I'll wait for an opportunity. And it presented itself when I immigrated to Canada in uh, 08. And uh, one of the friends mentioned, oh yeah, my son just got his pilot license. And it was uh, on one of the first meetings here with people in Canada. And I was like, oh yeah, I would like to know more. So I made some phone calls, uh, booked my flight. So 10 days later, I wasn't there and that was it. I was so amazed that it was so much free. I mean, it wasn't just a humble 152, but for somebody who wanted to do it, it was, it was a big deal. And I was hooked right there. So I got my pilot license, didn't feel like I had enough training. Then I pursued my commercial license, still didn't feel like I had enough training <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing. And I decided to do my instructor rating. And by then I was teaching in high schools, universities or um, tutoring for 
about 10 years. So I figured the combination of flying and teaching was a, a good fit and I'm enjoying instructing since then. And how quickly did you get into aerobatics? Because it seems like you got into that pretty quickly after you got your licenses. When you look at the timeline, uh, I uh, got my licenses and ratings in 09. I flew my first air show in 2012, but it didn't feel that fast for me. <laughs> Nothing happened fast enough for me. <laughs> I'm a very impatient person. Uh, I was actually very much afraid of uh, all the unusual attitudes. I wasn't comfortable doing spins in my training and I had to really force myself when I had to do it on the flight test or for the purpose of instructing. In fact, when I started instructing, I was hoping that somebody would take my flight with a student if I had to do spins. And that was until uh, my partner, Peter, invited me to say, okay, we have a decathlon here. You have to try it. It's just one flight. It's like, okay. And by then I did already my tailwheel training, so I was comfortable with uh, uh, flying a tail dragger, but aerobatics just wasn't it. So we went up, we literally did two loops, two rolls, and it was so comfortable. I felt very much in control, and I can say that even until then, I can do spins, I'm comfortable with them, but it's not the most comfortable maneuver. So an encouragement to send out there uh, for pilots who think they are not comfortable with aerobatics because they don't like spins, try the actual <laughs> full uh, spectrum of aerobatics because loops and rolls are very comfortable, very controlled, and it's a lot of fun. So after that first aerobatic flight, I got my aerobatic instructor rating probably within a month <laughs> with Michael Peer. Yes. And uh, yeah, I started instructing and I think it was a year or so later that it was Boundary Bay, our show, and it was not even about me performing. It was just to showcase a local school that does aerobatic training and... I flew my first routine uh, at a Boundary Bay Air Show without uh, too many aspirations to go all around North America doing the same thing. And I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was different. And then it was um, a uh, producers from the Vanderhoof Air Show that happened to be at that show. They approached me. It's like, oh, would you mind joining our air show and their show was a couple of weeks after that it's like i would love to and kind of continued from there on cool. just happened uh, i didn't imagine like if you asked me 15 years ago if i would be flying air shows i wouldn't believe that myself <laughs> yeah but here i am and you've had some pretty uh good mentors along the way um to kind of show you through that. So Bud Granley, I think, is one of your mentors. And the Granley family is pretty legendary in Canadian air shows. And um, the listeners might have seen their yak routine the last couple of years. Um, so tell me about your work with Bud Granley. Bud is the most amazing mentor and the most amazing person. Um, I'm grateful for him, not only for mentoring me through the air show, uh, training, uh, but overall, he was a mentor in general as a as a person. He has guided me through the scenarios that had nothing to do with stick and rudder skills, but it could be either a business aspect of air shows, um, uh, people aspect of air shows, logistics, uh, uh, lots of things. I felt comfortable and I do feel comfortable uh, picking up uh, the phone back then like hey but I have a question a problem he is like yeah jump jump in the plane come over <laughs> <laughs> and I would fly across the border he is about 40 minutes south from uh, where we are right now so I would quickly clear customs and he would be at his hangar in uh, uh, Boeing field and uh yeah, we would just have a chat or go for a flight uh, in the in the practice area or just have a conversation. 
or any of the events I had privilege of uh, flying in uh, several number of uh, air shows, including the Arctic Aviation Tour, by the way, uh, with Bud. And uh, every time the feedback uh, on the flying, both from Bud and his son, Ross, both of them are aces, and they give you very constructive feedback and they keep you on your toes, they keep you improving all the time. And I'm so, so grateful to him. It seems like the air show scene is pretty supportive. Like everybody supports each other and tries to carry everybody through um, getting safer and better and improving everybody's uh, time on the air show circuit. Of course, it's uh, the everybody's interest uh, as performers, as producers, uh, air bosses, announcers, everybody involved to make air show a safe environment. Um, I can't say it has always been easy. It's a little bit of an old boys club, (laughs) friendly, but old boys club. So um, it's uh, still uh, much more supportive people than otherwise. And I'm very grateful uh, that I've made so many friends, uh, so many pretty close friends and trusted uh, people that I've worked with over the air show years that I would probably wouldn't have met them if I wasn't flying. Right. Yeah. That's the great thing about aviation is the community around it, I think. Um, so tell me about your routine and what aircraft you fly. I'm flying a Super Decathlon. Uh, uh, I call her Sky Dancer. <laughs> and we are flying uh, with a classical music, Ave Maria. It's a, a graceful sky dance, uh, uh, slower, elegant, uh, and put to the music. When I first developed it, I... Uh, literally had the had in the, my headphones I had the music playing and uh, the aerobatic maneuvers were put to the music and uh, eventually I could uh, I just knew the timing and with the announcers uh, we typically know that smoke on music on and uh, uh, there we go the, it was my second choice of music. Uh, the first season I have flown with a little bit different music. You might see it on some of the recordings. Uh, uh, later I switched to Ave Maria also for some personal reasons. <laughs> um, I didn't feel that uh, it was just uh, me doing. I felt that God put me up there for a reason, whatever that reason might be, and hopefully it's uh, inspiring and bringing something special. And I wanted to choose the music that would bring a little bit of that message back to the uh, to the audience. And uh, Ave Maria seemed to be a perfect fit for it. Yeah, I feel like your airshow routine probably appeals a lot to the kind of the general public that come to shows and the non-pilots because you see an aircraft that looks like something you'd see at most airports um you're doing graceful aerobatics instead of like expensive warbirds or nimble show specific aircraft pulling high g's so it seems a little more accessible to the general public it is. Uh, in fact, Super Decathlon is a good training aircraft, so even beginner pilots can access one in most places, uh, uh, rent or train on it, so it's very relatable. And it's also the fel- the interest in the air show is to have something different. And if we all fly the Warbirds or all fly Extras 300 or Pizzas, it would be boring. But to have an aircraft and, a, and an act that is different, uh, f- uh, more slower paced uh, and quiet and elegant as opposed to high powered and uh, high performance uh, fast jets, I think this is what um, uh, keeps the um, audience entertained. Yeah, like a good concert or an album. You kind of need a flow through an air show. You don't want everything to be in your face. You need to sort of let people breathe a little bit of course yeah um so you're speaking about how it was a little bit of an old boys club but um when i was preparing for this chat i was thinking like oh i actually know quite a few women who fly air shows um patty wagstaff julie clark vicky benzing yourself um so you, you must meet a lot of girls and women at air shows who look up to you as a role model um how do you feel being in that in that role 
I think it is a big responsibility. Uh, and my main message, I'm not special. <laughs> I'm just like everybody else. And maybe the only difference is that I set a goal and I was pretty disciplined working hard towards it. And I believe that uh, most people, when they set a goal and they work hard towards it, they can achieve it. And we often have these conversations uh, at the air shows. Oh, how, how do you get into flying? Uh, how do you get to whatever you put your mind to? It doesn't have to be flying. It can be completely non-aviation related. And, you know, the most rewarding is when you meet the same person a year or two later at a, the same air show. And it's like, oh, yeah, I got my pilot license. And they run to you to tell you about it because this is what you talked about before and now they did it and they feel so proud. And it, I feel very special when, when they come and share about it. So it's not about me bringing something they can't do, but it's about helping them to find it in them. And... If I could help a little bit, I think my mission is fulfilled. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so along those lines, what what can we do to engage young people, not just women, um, and get them interested in aviation? It, it seems like it's this thing that's out of reach for a lot of people. How do we make it more accessible? I think a big uh, challenge these days is that we don't see airplanes all that much. In the past, you could go up to the cockpit in an airliner and talk to pilots and sit in the captain's seat or uh, watch from the back. Now everything is uh, locked up. You're going through the tube into the cockpit, into the cabin, and the only way to know what type of plane it is if you read the safety card. Yeah, that's right. So we don't get as exposed to aviation as uh, I feel I even was when I was younger, when I was a kid. I'm dating myself here. <laughs> and I feel that bringing uh, kids to air shows where they can see the planes up close, where they can talk to the pilots, and depending on the air show security protocols, I love bringing kids to my plane and let them sit in the plane, let them touch the stick, let them take pictures. And it gets them so excited. They feel that this is something real down to earth and not somewhere unachievable. And that would be the first step. Beyond that, I believe if there is a will, there is a way. Uh, obviously, flight training is not a, a cheap endeavor. But when you compare it to it in one year of flight training, you probably pay about the same as you would have paid in five years of university with the difference that uh, you train for one year and you can start working for the remaining four years when a university student would be still paying five years later and not having any work experience with the same total amount more or less paid for the education. So when you look at it that way, uh, it's uh, a profession, very rewarding one, that is within reach and especially for like Canadian uh, students with uh, various resources that are available out there. I, I think it's achievable. It still takes work. It's still uh, practice, studying, uh, taking exams, uh, and uh, it requires dedication. There are no two ways about it. Um, yeah, kind of you were talking earlier about how expensive it is in Europe and how restricted it is. And we are super lucky here that this is available to people for not, it takes some money, but not a huge amount of money. And there's scholarships available and things like that. Definitely scholarships, student loans, uh, uh, quite a number of them, uh, student loans or grants, uh, commercial and government. Um, uh, yeah, there, there are ways. In your in your role at Canadian Flight Center, are you seeing most students come through, young people come through looking for a career, or is it sort of a mix between they want to do it for themselves and people who want a career? It's a mix, definitely. We have a large number of local and international students who are coming for uh, professional training. And uh, naturally, it's the biggest part of our uh, flight training because uh, 
they do need their 200 hours plus uh, and uh, sometimes beyond. Uh, they do their instructor rating with us, often staying to work uh, past that. And we do have people who do it for fun and uh, not just young people. One of my students uh, was 72 <laughs> and he was learning to fly and maybe he's not picking it up as quickly as an 18-year-old, but he's having fun. He's enjoying it. He, he got it. Uh, he got all his checkouts and licenses and uh, it's a great retirement project. So yeah. aviation is uh, truly for everybody. And then the other day I had a, a fam flight with an eight-year-old girl <laughs> and she was all blooming and the most exciting thing. And um, I will be actually uploading a video of it shortly. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. So you seem to be someone who can learn things very quickly. Um, or you, you just dedicate yourself to learning new things. Um, you have quite an education with your PhD. You're fluent in many languages and not only a pilot, but you also went to the world masters championships, I think for figure skating recently. So you clearly like to challenge yourself and have taught yourself how to learn, which is key, I think. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I definitely need a challenge and I need a challenge at all, at all times. Otherwise, life is boring. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's probably a little bit of a competitive uh, uh, feature there. <laughs> I've uh, learned languages starting in, at my high school and uh, we had the competitions of different languages and different levels of languages. So obviously I had to do it. And I was lucky enough that the school uh, that I finished was, had all these resources available. So I went for it. And as I was joking later, I mean, at all uh, different times, I was uh, learning 12 different languages. I ended up with eight more or less fluent, but it was, uh, I was joking, the first five are difficult and then you get used to it. <laughs> Right. And it's probably true with uh, many things we are learning. It gets easier. Once you get a system, uh, you know, it's like, okay, if I'm learning a new language, I need to learn nouns, uh, verbs, uh, I need to know how to build sentences, I need to, etc. cetera, uh, writing, reading, so on. And as you're taking on a new language, you are just basically filling in the... Uh, cubby holes, but you already have the system of cubby holes that you need to fill. So, right, so you, you learned, you learned how you yourself learn because everybody learns a little bit differently. And exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's so individual. But as you're learning, you will develop a system like some people learn with flashcards. And I've never done that. I've just have my way of reading things that I can memorize them. And you will not discover it unless you do it for yourself. And our role as flight instructors is to guide people because they cannot, we cannot learn for them. We cannot make them learn. Uh, we can only help them learn. And uh, having various ways of uh, doing it or offering different options uh, until the student finds a way of uh, uh, that works for them and then just do it over and over and over until you're successful. Yeah, I guess having that that sort of arsenal of different examples you can pull out to help illustrate in different ways is important when you become an instructor. Definitely. And what helped me because I became an instructor after about 10 years of uh, high school and university teaching that I have been doing. So it was easier to combine. And I had a kid. What I noticed in my instructor class that uh, students who do have children tend to be uh, better instructors because they have gone through the experience of explaining something to a person who doesn't know anything, right. <laughs> i.e. kids, <laughs> yeah. or new pilots. We are explaining something, aviation, to somebody who had usually or often no exposure to, prior exposure to aviation. And uh, having uh, experienced, not, not necessarily their own children, even like babysitting, for example, or daycare experience, it helps uh any prior teaching experience helps to become a better flight instructor uh, uh, down the road. So that was uh, my experience uh, having gone through like 
four or five, five different universities and doing a few degrees and uh, adapting to different systems, seeing different systems and finding my way through them uh, helped me to build an arsenal of tools that I can share with my students now. Awesome. So I guess that kind of segues into my, my question. The past two episodes have had instructors on the show and I've asked them a couple of questions. So I'll ask them to you too. And the first one is what makes a good instructor? And then what makes a good student? I think both for the student and the instructor, the key is to never stop learning. Uh, even as instructor, we don't know everything. I keep learning. I keep learning from my students. I keep learning. I'm finding new materials that I can bring to my students. I've uh, started the new uh, study area and uh, I'm considering uh, to get another PhD in rocket science at this point. <laughs> and that's because I need to keep learning and I need a challenge. If we stop learning, we think we know it all, we fall behind. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for the students uh, when they believe they know it all or they have put a check mark that they have done their minimum whatever, 60% on the written exam, and therefore they're fine. Uh, that's a dangerous attitude. And um, to be a good student, to be a good instructor, it has to be the mindset of constantly keep learning. You will often see the most humble attitude from a 20,000-hour airline captain, and they keep learning. Right. And I, I very much respect and admire that experience and that attitude. So you're also a pilot examiner, um, so that's probably a pretty interesting role. Do you, do you feel like students are as prepared as they should be these days? Uh, <laughs> not always. Yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely trying, and uh, this last year with COVID was uh, more challenging for flight training definitely than it has been in the previous years. Uh, Transport Canada recently tightened the rules as well on um, evaluation. In the past, uh, students could have as many twos in their flight test as they want, and it still wasn't a failure. Now they limited the number of twos, so basically the number of major errors. Unfortunately, that naturally drove the average success rate down. Uh, what I see is... And this is a little bit surprising for me, especially when I started uh, examining commercial uh, flight tests uh, on average seem to be less successful than private flight tests when you would think uh, it's about the same flight test and it's for a person who has more experience. But I think uh, what is happening is that when um, students are going for their private flight test, they are so focused, they are putting their full effort and they are doing their best. And uh, majority of cases, I think the Canadian average is about 70-75%. It's a successful flight test. Uh, by the time they're going for the commercial flight test, they take many things for granted and not necessarily paying that much attention to details. Uh, and the details still need to be paid attention to. Right. And yeah. often enough, uh, if a f commercial flight test is not successful, it's typically not the question of uh, uh, stick and rudder skill or the knowledge. Uh, more often than not, it's the lack of attention to details for whatever reason it might be. Hmm. So a recommendation out there for students uh, preparing for their flight test, just do your best effort. Don't take anything for granted. And actually, I also have the uh, flight test debrief series by uh, myself and Peter, who is examiner for multi and IFR, and I'm doing private and commercial. And we have a series on uh, YouTube uh, talking about specific flight tests. Obviously, no names, no school, no aircraft, no student names. But we are talking about typical mistakes, something that we have seen and something uh, that we suggest to improve and how. So it's free resource out there. Feel free to use it. <laughs> oh, perfect. I'll put the link to that in the show notes so people can find it. Um, I guess that kind of touches on 
where I was going to go next, which what what is my what is your advice for students about to take their check ride? But I guess preparation is probably the key thing, isn't it? Very, very much so. Yes, and listen to your instructor; <laughs> they've been through it before. <laughs> right, They're, their job is to get you to pass. So, and they have a personal interest in it. It goes on their record too, not just yours. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't really have required like flight reviews. They have biennial flight reviews in the states where you have to go up and have basically a check ride every two years. Um, but I feel like upset recovery and aerobatic training uh, would be a good option for pilots who want to be proactive about their refresher training here in Canada and keeping their flight chops sharp <laughs> to steal <laughs> Steve's slogan. Um, you guys teach that. Is that something you believe? Very much so. And in fact, Canada still requires recurrent training. It, it might be not as formal as biannual flight review in the States. Uh, you're still required to do something regular related to your flight training. And within our school, we usually want students to go at least once a year with an instructor. And often enough, we would go through the emergency procedures because if it's a renter and they're taking the plane to go to Chile walk regularly, how often would they do spins and stalls uh, on the way with their family, right? right. Probably yeah. never. Luckily, never. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you never know when the emergency hits and it typically comes unannounced. And uh, to be prepared, you want to have your emergency procedures uh, and unusual uh, recovery skills uh, sharp and fresh. And uh, yeah, we would usually ask people to do it at least once a year, not at least regularly once a year. And uh, spins, stall recovery, not just the... Uh, textbook version straight and level, but from a practical scenario. We simulate up at the altitude you're going for the takeoff and uh, pitch up too much and didn't pay attention. Now what? How do you recover from a full power stall? How do you recover from a climbing turn, turning stall? And note how much altitude you're losing in it. What if you were trying to outclimb a mountain and uh, would you have that clearance? And often Part of this review, again, is not just uh, uh, physically uh, stick and rudder skill, but it's also reviewing those scenarios that can lead to it and uh, how to prevent them in the first place. Yeah, it's been interesting because I've just moved to a new plane. Um, and so I've had to kind of, I knew my old plane really well. I knew exactly sort of my procedures, my flow checks. And so moving to this new plan has been really good to refresh all those things in my brain. I'm like, oh, right, I need to practice these things and also learn how they affect my new plane and things like that. So it's it's been good and it's been eye-opening of how relaxed we can get sometimes when we're flying the same plane all the time and know it really well. You know, not even the same plane. Sometimes the same plane loaded differently can be a totally uh, new animal. Uh, 172 is familiar to most of our listeners probably, and they are comfortable with it. And we can do spins, stalls uh, when we are light. Uh, try the same 172 full uh, tanks and four people in it. It's a completely different animal, different, uh, different plane, different... Uh, aerodynamics, uh, it behaves differently, it feels different. So being mindful of that is also part of uh, the training and pointing out the scenarios because if a student was flying uh, for 200 hours by themselves or with an instructor and uh, after or a private license after 50 hours they get their license and they decide to take uh, three uh, friends with them, they can be up for a surprise and that can be pretty nasty. Yeah, I always appreciated the the full load check flight um, when I graduated from Glacier. They'd be like, "All right, load some friends in. We're going for a full gross flight." So that was good. Because it, yeah, definitely it approaches differently, it flares differently, everything's different. And then you go in the mountains on a hot day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, my uh, airplane, uh, uh, my air air show plane, the Super Decathlon, is quite powerful. It's lightweight and 180 horsepower, so on a cool day, sea level, uh, flying in pit practice area, doing aerobatics, it's so easy. I was flying several years in a row, uh, the air show in Truckee, California, mm. in July, a 6,000 foot elevation uh, of the airport, and it's usually more than 
35, 36, up to 40 degrees Celsius. So the DEA on the surface is already 9,000 feet. Wow. And uh, you get into the circuit height where you start usually your aerobatic routine and it feels like you're flying a glider because there is no air, there is no power, and uh, the same uh, the same plane becomes uh, something different. Yeah, bet. So, so somebody wanted to get into aerobatics, either air shows or competitions or just for themselves, where do they start? Aerobatics is a lot of fun. It's also a lot of focus. <laughs> so uh, the first step would usually be uh, getting a tailwheel uh, checkout. There is no rating or endorsement by Transport Canada, but it's uh, definitely a different set of skills. Uh, theoretically, with your PPL on the 152, you can take a Citabri and go flying, you would be legal. It would probably not be a good idea. <laughs> The insurance companies probably want a few hours too. Probably, like our insurance company requires 10 hours uh, prior to going solo on a tailwheel, and I think it's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Uh, that's about the amount of time that it takes because uh, most of planes, uh, mo most of aerobatic planes are tailwheel for drag reasons. Uh, and uh, being before you can flip flop the plane in the air, you should be able to take it up in the air and out of the air. Yeah. So that would definitely be a first step. Uh, some people say, okay, can I try aerobatics? What if I get sick? What if I cannot handle it? I don't want to do all my aerobatic, uh, all my tailwheel training prior to that. Yeah, for sure, we can do that. Uh, we do aerobatic fam flights, basically. Don't touch anything on takeoff and landing. <laughs> and then we can still do all the maneuvers. And then it depends uh, what people want to do with aerobatics. Uh, aerobatics flying for competitions, for air shows, uh, or for instructing is uh, somewhat different. At the competition, you probably push the airplane more to its limit. It's more precise flying, but you're not flying as close to the ground. Hmm. Airshow flying is uh, less strict because we are flying for general public and it's more of a show and it's about how it looks rather than the technical straight lines uh, as the aerobatic judges would want to see and uh, therefore flying is uh, different and i would typically ask people what do they want to do before we even start training because this is uh, the way i would uh, guide their training in this case i've done both i'm mostly flying air shows i did compete in the beginning uh, of my aerobatic flying unless, until I said it's like it's getting too many events in the summer I still have to teach my regular students and then um, there is obviously an option of aerobatic instructor usually it's something that is done by somebody who is already an airplane instructor and they want to just have an add-on although I did work with a couple of students who are not uh, airplane instructors or they have no interest of being airplane instructors and they just wanted to teach uh, aerobatics and that's definitely an option as well. It does not exist in the States but in Canada it's a separate uh, rating, aerobatic instructor rating. There is only class one and class two and uh, yeah they are valid uh, for three and four years just like airplane and helicopter ratings. How much is involved with getting that add-on? What sort of things do you have to um, what sort of maneuvers and things do you have to know how to teach? And... A funny thing is the legal requirement, uh, if somebody already holds an, uh, an instructor rating, um, to get an aerobatic instructor rating is five hours of briefing. Oh, okay. Period. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, if it's really enough, probably not. Uh, realistically, what I had in my experience, somebody who is an airplane instructor and wants to become an aerobatic instructor. So if they don't have any aerobatic experience at all. So between teaching them aerobatics and teaching them how to teach aerobatics, it's about somewhere between 20 and 30 hours right. of flying. Uh, plus all the ground that goes, uh, ground time that goes with it. But this is an easy part because if somebody is already an instructor, they know how to teach a maneuver and then we only need to figure out how the do they teach a loop, a roll, a cubinate, uh, uh, hammerhead, and so on. So the maneuvers uh, that are required on the flight test uh, for aerobatic instructor are pretty basic. It's loop, roll, spin, uh, uh, cuban, split S, uh, hammerhead, bear roll, 
I think that's pretty much it. Um, the standards. Uh, the standards. Yeah. It's all in the cars. The focus is uh, actually both with uh, aerobatic instructor rating and um, even the air show certification for us as performers, it's about the emergency. But aerobatic instructor rating especially, it's not about doing fancy maneuvers. Uh, you hear uh, competition aerobatic pilots, so, yeah, uh, you do, or performers like, okay, shoulder roll here, and you're pulling high Gs, and then a negative, and then we're doing the outside square loop. And the question is, why? 99% of people who are watching an air show would not know the difference between inside loop and outside loop. Right. And pushing the plane, or in case of an instructor, pushing the student um, or the envelope of um, what you're doing uh, gets you too close to where you might not be comfortable recovering or you can even do damage to the plane. So big part of training is knowing those limits and knowing when to take over and when to recover. So I can spend quite a bit on uh, teaching a loop and it's not about pulling on the stick and uh, doing the vertical 360. It's about, okay, if the student went into that loop with not enough speed, how do you recover from it? Right. First What's of your, all, yeah. to recognize it, and if it happens in different stages, or if student something does something unexpected when we are inverted, how do I recover from it? And this is a big part of the uh, aerobatic instructor. It's not about doing the maneuvers, but it's uh, anticipating and getting out of something that isn't going as a uh, as it should have been. Right. Yeah. Teaching the maneuvers is one thing. <laughs> or performing them is one thing and teaching them is a whole another thing. Yeah, we teach yeah. good aerobatics first and then we teach how to recover from bad aerobatics. Yeah, awesome. You, you touched on it earlier, but you, um, in 2017, you did the, the Canadian Arctic Aviation Tour um, and that was part of the Canada 150 celebrations. And I think it had something like 97 shows or something like that. Um, you got to go on that trip. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, it was for uh, Canada's 150, and it was a special way of, uh, from the aviation side to celebrate it uh, by going to every single northern community in Canada and bringing an air show there. It was extremely rewarding and special because for Abbotsford crowd, an air show is like, oh yeah, another annual air show. Are we going this year or are we going somewhere else? For People in a community of Aklavik, well, 500 people live in there. This is an event of the of a lifetime. We got 100% attendance. The entire village was there <laughs> every single time, wherever we were going. And it, the response was very special. And uh, I think uh, we came up north to bring aviation to share our passion. Um, the other aspect was education. Uh, we visited schools, we talked to people, uh, encouraging to uh, get uh, education, to learn things, to um, for the young kids to uh, get qualified, to and to show that there is more more out there and then they can return to their community and bring uh, bring their new knowledge so there was the education aspect of the of the event but i felt like we as performers uh, were the ones who benefited the most because what we have seen what we have learned the people we've met there the way of life up north was so unreal um, the first uh, day uh, of the trip uh, we were we went first to Rainbow Lake, Alberta, and then we were in um, uh, Fort, one of the forts yeah. <laughs> in Northwest Territories, and um, we are sitting there around the campfire after having a moose barbecue for the entire village, wow. and uh, first watching, and then the 
people there invited us to join them. We're doing drum dancing. Nice. And I'm there, I'm thinking, okay, yesterday I woke up in Vancouver and now I'm drum dancing up north around the campfire. It felt like I was on a totally different planet. And people were so open uh, to share their culture, their way of life. Uh, it was, uh, it felt, it was very special. And how long was that tour and how many, did you do all 97 stops? Uh, the uh, the tour actually ended up being cut a little bit short. The total was uh, 63 year shows that were performed and I participated in 48 of them. Wow. And that was, um, that must have been great for your performance chops <laughs> as well. Like getting that many shows in a solid chunk, you must have been really honing your craft as well. Uh, very much so. It was challenging because at uh, most of uh, big air shows, uh, when everything is prepared, you would have the very convenient uh, aerobatic box markers. So you know exactly where you're flying. Uh, you have uh, everything set up. You have the announcer, you have the music set up, you have uh, search and uh, crash fire rescue. Um, and it's an air show typically that is not put uh, the first time, so people have experience with it. Uh, coming to a small community of three to five hundred people, the air show was like, okay, we're doing it over the river between that tree and that tree. <laughs> <laughs> and the announcer was also the uh, air boss and uh, the same person was the crash fire rescue <laughs> <laughs> with uh, a local uh, uh, villager uh, sitting on his boat ready to uh, go towards you if you have to go down in the river. <laughs> so that was uh, a lot of adapting. Uh, definitely makes you more aware of and more grateful for all the uh, comfortable things we have uh, here flying our regular shows. Um, I also had for technical reasons switch uh, aircraft about halfway so I had to uh, learn, well learn, I could fly the Citabria and could fly aerobatics in the Citabria so uh, part of the tour was done with the decathlon part was done with the Citabria so it uh, uh, as a less powered plane, it makes you work harder doing the same maneuvers. So yes, I have learned a lot. <laughs> and the logistics of organizing that tour must have been incredible for the people who organized it. Uh, very much so. It's something that was, uh, the, the tour itself was about a month, I would say five weeks maybe. And uh, the preparation uh, to it lasted more than a year. Wow, yeah. Because uh, many places would not have avgas. Most of um, airshow uh, planes are using avgas, not jet jet fuel. Uh, those community don't have uh, communities don't have it, so we had to ship ahead of time. Uh, smoke oil. Uh, it's all the logistics to have it arranged. Not all places even have hotel rooms. Uh, in some villages, we would be like on John Doe's couch. <laughs> <laughs> and which is great. I mean, we got to experience in many places, there are no hotels, no restaurants, and we were just part of that village. And at no point uh, we were complaining. To the contrary, it was like we get to experience how local people live instead of being guests here. And uh, it was very special. I wouldn't want it any other way. Do you have any, what's your fondest memory of that trip? What's the one thing you kind of take away from it? Oh, there were, there were many. Uh, kids were the best. The amazement of, uh, that you see in their eyes when they see a plane, when they can come to the plane and touch it and sit inside. I, from the trip, I have a, a picture that is sitting uh, here in my office and it stayed here. I have in my plane three kids um, sitting inside and the sheer joy on those faces is uh, is the biggest reward any performer could wish for. Awesome. Well, we're almost uh, coming up to an hour here. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this episode there. 
because um, there's there's a bunch of more stuff I want to talk to you about. Okay. You started a series on YouTube called Healthy Aviation too, which I think is important um, to talk about. But that could be a, a whole episode on its own. But yeah, I'm really glad we had you on, and um, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was great to uh, meet you. Great to chat with you. I've been listening to your great podcast for the last year. You are doing amazing and uh, happy to be part of it and looking forward to talking to you, to you again. Yeah. And actually, the one thing I wanted to, I, we skipped over it earlier. I wanted, this is going to come out right before March. And March is the Women in Aviation Month. And I know you're pretty active in that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on with that? And uh, of course, right now it's a little difficult because of COVID, but um, yeah, what's up this year? Do you know? Uh, I don't know about specific events that will actually be happening this year because, uh, like you said, COVID restrictions, everything is changing uh, daily pretty much. Uh, the events that do usually happen is um, Girls Flight 2 is one of the bigger ones, and it's available to all women and girls uh, who have never been on a small plane before or never been on a plane and it's a completely free event uh, everybody working uh, on it are volunteers and uh, it's uh, donations uh, that make it possible and the idea is to introduce as many women and girls to aviation and hopefully it uh, sparks some uh, new excitement and we'll have more female pilots and um where can people find you online or where they, if you want to find out more about Anna, where do we go? Uh, I have my website, my Airshow Performer website. It's uh, www.annaskydancer.com or uh, they can fly, uh, find out more about the flight training we're doing at uh, Canadian Flight Center, which is www.cfc, uh, like Canadian Flight Center, .aero, A-E-R-O. And we have all the training questions there, or just send me an email. It's anna at cfc.aero. Nice. So I'm going to come do some rolls and, and loops and aerobatics with you. <laughs> I have to warn you, it's addicting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Thanks, Anna, and thanks to you for listening. I'll post links to Anna and CFC's YouTube channels where you can find the Flight Test Debrief series and some videos of her airshow performance. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review or consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com flyingbc. And now, you have control. <laughs>